0: Civility was being used as kind of a cudgel to shut people up and to stop the argument rather than to further it.
1: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial free versions of every episode, plus members only bonus content. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the attempts to distract us from real issues with calls for civility and attempts to suppress dissent altogether. With various bans and impediments to protesting. Clips today come from On the Media, Newsbeat, Citations Needed, Democracy Now!, The Trump Cast, and Counterspin.
2: Ever since the 2016 election, we've been pondering the obliteration of our norms. But seen in the context of history, that's normal. The First World War, the Depression, the Second World War, jazz, rock and roll, the Vietnam War, alienation, and the Internet. Keith Bybee, author of How Civility Works, says every generation of Americans has found a reason to bemoan the end of courtesy and respect. But the fact is... Civility can be a tool of oppression.
3: Jim Crow segregation was surrounded and sustained by a racial etiquette. Martin Luther King spoke about this quite eloquently in his letter from Birmingham Jail. You don't call the wife of an African American Mrs. She always gets addressed by her first name. An African American male adult is never Mr. He is boy or John. In order to be a member of polite society defined by such a racial etiquette was to enact, through your conventional good behavior, a racial hierarchy. The sit-ins, which were in part efforts to change laws, were direct confrontations with that etiquette. It wasn't ever enough for the civil rights movement just to seek policy change. There had to also be social change, one form of civility extended to all races, so that it would be possible for people to interact as equals.
2: Talk about then how etiquette violation can be a political tactic. You offer a really good example of what you call manner-based intimidation, the group called ACT UP.
3: That's right. So during the 1980s in uh, Reagan administration, as the AIDS crisis was becoming more and more manifest, decorum at the time precluded discussion of non-heterosexual practices. Decorum at the time also sidelined or marginalized expressions of grief or mourning in public spaces. Act up to bring greater attention to the AIDS crisis and to demand a more proactive response from government abandoned appropriate behavior. They staged these quite dramatic takeovers of town hall or city hall meetings and legislative hearings. They staged die-ins. This tactic initially was understood as counterproductive. The idea is that they should play along with the rules of civility that are currently in place. Today, it's called tone policing, when you confront someone who's engaged in protest or some form of obstreperous behavior, and you say to them, you'd be a lot more effective— If you would calm down. And what it does, right, is it redirects the conversation away from the issue that the protester is trying to call attention to and says, no, the problem is not the AIDS crisis or the problem is not police brutality. Instead, the problem is your style of complaint.
2: Athletes taking the knee denounced as unpatriotic and disrespectful.
3: Policing of tone, I don't think, is just atmospherics. It really is a way of conveying a different understanding of the respect that people are owed. Mm -hmm. It it taps into fundamental issues.
2: From respectfully taking a knee, to yelling at a diner, to cursing out the president. I, I wonder if there is some sort of range, and can you distinguish among them, or are they all the same thing?
3: You know, there's no... Authoritative institution that tells us what civility is, that tells us how to update civility when time has changed. That kind of debate surfaces sometimes a deeper criticism that we should be without civility at all. Like, let's just say what we think. And the patron saint of this perspective is John Stuart Mill and his powerful essay on liberty, where he said, you know, we should have a contentious public culture. We should have people shouting at each other in
2: restaurants. He was deeply suspicious of civility as a tool of repression.
3: Accusing people of being rude or uncivil is a way of, in Mill's language, stigmatizing them as being immoral. Interestingly, Mill himself ultimately came down in favor of civility. He thought that there should be rules of temperate speech if... They could be designed and implemented in a way that would give respect to all merited arguments.
2: And I thought he was a realist. That
3: does sound pretty soft-headed, right? And so you wonder, why would someone like Mill shift gears like that? Why would this hard-headed proponent of contention and disputation suddenly go wobbly? I actually think it grew out of his very commitment to robust, uninhibited, wide-open debate. What civility and really what good manners do are provide you a mechanism for conveying your integrity. He sought and he thought rules of temperate speech, which were more egalitarian and fair, would actually underwrite a free speech society.
2: But you've already argued that civility is political and therefore the rules will always be determined by the powerful.
3: It's also the case, though, right, that uh, politics is never finished. So it's a call to action because civility is constituted through political conflict. So get out there. Join the argument. Mill, in general, said you can go as far as you want so long as it doesn't hurt another person
2: finish up then with a certain paradox that you alluded to when you said that John Stuart Mill thought that civility was, in a sense, a reflection of character. And then you went and you quoted uh, François de la Rochefoucauld, who said, hypocrisy is the homage vice pays to virtue. What he meant is, even if you're lying about how you feel, you're still behaving in a virtuous way, and that's better for society.
3: When we're honest with one another, we often discover not our true commonalities. What we discover is how much we really don't like each other. And if we're in that kind of society, which is riven with disagreement, yet we still need to get along.
2: Civility enables us to lie in order to get along. And what's wrong with that?
3: <laughs> right. Well,
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
3: Now, you can say, well, I, I don't want to live in a society where people aren't really telling me what they really think. And I, I think that that perspective is really held by only people who have never lived with complete honesty, which is very unpleasant. Civility gives us an easily deployable means for conveying a basic decency.
2: At the same time, you're okay with yelling at Kristen Nielsen in a restaurant.
3: Right. I contain multitudes, Brooke. (laughs) Shouting in the restaurant is part and parcel of determining what will count as our baseline of respect. We owe one another in public life. So that's part of the making of the sausage. Once the sausage is made, and this metaphor is going to break down pretty quickly, then (laughs) people can pose with that sausage in a way that's yep, inauthentic it's just and hypocritical. <laughs> okay.
2: really? I think we should keep this in. <laughs>
3: I think this sausage
4: thing could be big. <laughs>
2: um, but the thing is, is that a lot of people worry about the slippery slope, but our rules of discourse seem to have ebbed and flowed forever.
3: It's not as if having gone in one direction, we can't go backwards. We've seen that our manners have become more inclusive and egalitarian over time. But having made that progress doesn't mean that we couldn't step backward. I don't think we're going to dispense with civility. I think we might radically change the way in which we operationalize it over time. But I don't think that we will shed the requirement for civility. I I don't think it's something we get over. I think rather it's the means through which we realize our ideals of Justice and Fairness. Martin County Sheriff's Department.
0: Hi, um, I need to report um, an assault.
3: Okay, where did it occur at?
0: Um, it's happening right now. Okay. Um, it's, what phone? It's on the um, sacred. Uh, it's up at uh, Standing Rock. There are innocent, unarmed people being attacked with water in uh, freezing cold temperatures. Um, okay. Unarmed people. Trying... It's oh. happening right now. There okay. are okay. militia-style police firing at point-blank range with high-powered mace um on unarmed people who protects the the people
5: i arrived in august of 2016 I had inadvertently sent my little brother and sister up there, trying to get them to do something post-college. And um they pretty much uh, showed up, made a bunch of friends. And when I got there, they were like, hey, this is our big sister, she's going to take care of us. And all of a sudden, I had like 30 youth to care for. In that time, after the International Indigenous Youth Council was formed, We experienced our first act of violence directly from the um, mercenaries that worked for the Dakota Access Pipeline, and they unleashed dogs on our women um, and men and had um, dogs Biting and making our people bleed.
6: Are you telling the dogs to bite the protesters? <laughs> <laughs> the dog has blood in its nose and its mouth. It is still standing
7: here threatening.
8: You can't, put your, your you can't put your blood on the dog. Against you're
9: against your
7: animals. You, you can't animal. put your blood no. on the dog. That's that. That was in September
5: 2016. In October, um, we had our first use of Brent Militarized Police Force when they came to raid one of our prayer camps. They actually brought in tanks and, um, these MRAPs, various, I guess, different weaponries, um, like these loud sound, um, equipment monitors that emit this really awful, awful noise that kind of make you want to drop to your knees and you lose all your equilibrium. Have to use.
10: Uh, headphones are earphones because they have a, a sound gun that they turn on ever, inter- intermittently and it freaking hurts.
5: They also brought in water tanks that they didn't end up using until November at another point. They escalated from um, the mace that they had been using to tear gas, from the tear gas to the concussion grenades that they shot into the crowds at people. Um, they were shooting military grade beanbags at us, um, rubber bullets. We also had several instances of uses of water cannons. Actually, the water, they were pumping the water that we were trying to protect into these water cannons to shoot them at us in negative 25 degree weather in the middle of November. It, it seemed like what started with, you know, attacks on us. From these mercenaries that had been hired by the pipeline companies then escalated to the involvement of the local and state governments, um, the state-sanctioned violence, which then moved into inviting police and law enforcement from five neighboring states that then came in support with the National Guard to stand against a bunch of natives in moccasins fighting to protect water.
11: There were a lot of people, water protectors, activists, allies, who gathered near the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota to challenge a pipeline that was being built by the government there through the water of the tribe and creating a lot of other environmental problems. The state and local police reacted quite Seriously, by surveying and by trying to shut down the protests, the FAA also enacted what are called no-fly zones to limit the ability of drones and other media to document what was happening, especially around some of the biggest police activity um, that was happening on the ground. The protests were successful in stopping the permit for a bit, but then ultimately the construction continued. And not only the protesters were arrested and affected, but also individuals who were there to document the protests, including reporters like Amy Goodman and also indigenous reporters. There is an arrest warrant out for journalist Amy Goodman because she had the audacity to be a journalist. She was reporting on the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Native Americans that have been protesting it, reporting on dogs being geared toward uh, some of the protesters in a violent fashion. She got arrested for trespassing. One of the big trends that we've seen with this anti-protest legislation generally is that it seems to be reacting to the most successful, most powerful tactics that are used by protesters. So a lot of the bills that we've seen respond to the anti-pipeline protests near Standing Rock and other related protests, also racial justice protests in Missouri that shut down highways to protest the police killing of Mike Brown. So it really is rather than reacting with substantive change to the things that the protesters are speaking out about, it looks like state legislators are reacting to the tactics and trying to make that attempt to make their voice louder actually quieter, making it harder for them to speak out and talk about the things that they find troubling in society. Just a little bit of context. A little bit over a
7: year ago, The Intercept got a tip from a contractor working for Tiger Swan, which is a mercenary security firm. This firm had been doing a lot of contract work overseas, mostly in Afghanistan and Iraq. But at this point, they were working in the U.S. for Energy Transfer Partners, which is the oil company behind the Dakota Access Pipeline. They had hired them, you know, supposedly to to do security work for the pipeline. But what the documents that this tip ended up revealing showed is that actually the kind of work they engaged in was much more sweeping and broad. It was really... A massive surveillance project that Tiger Swan undertook on behalf of Energy Transfer Partners. For months, they surveilled infiltrated um, activist communities, both at Standard Rock and then later in, in their neighboring states. And they, they started following progressive groups all across the country. And, uh, and the documents we obtained um, include detailed descriptions of, of all of this surveillance work. They named hundreds of people that were involved in pipeline protests. And in some cases, you know, they revealed that that private security firm were following them around, chasing them with their cars, definitely doing a lot of surveillance on social media, as well as doing radio eavesdropping and and using all kinds of technologies to listen in on on these movements and again, infiltrating them as well. And then in addition to this, what the documents also showed is that this company didn't really limit itself to surveillance, but they also engaged in essentially a propaganda effort by which they were creating their own news reports and sharing them on social media and trying to put a spin on the narrative around the protests. So it was really quite extraordinary. It was far beyond what we think of security companies as doing in in these kinds of situations really quite fascinating, and it does show the background that this firm had in the war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan. Some of the memos that we obtained, at some point, these memos described the water protectors movement, which is a a peaceful movement, as an ideologically driven insurgency with a strong religious component. And they even compared the anti-pipeline protesters to jihadist fighters. They have this absurd quote that I like to, to read to people because it just kind of shows the insanity of it all, where they basically say that the water protective movement generally followed the jihadist insurgency model while active. And so we can expect the individuals who fought for and supported it to follow a post-insurgency model after its collapse.
12: baby.
4: It's a full-on terrorist, terrorist attack. attack. Bad, bad. Mass surveillance keep the rioters intact. Bad, bad. But that's a lie, and we know the full facts. Bad, bad. U.S. patrol on the troll. Let you scroll, my face. A recognition tally of the toe, my We in the streets. You can wear that blindfold, my from standing rock to Ferguson. We on our own, my, my head up open their prisons here gas freezing water it's beyond chilling no more division of well wishing in dark days we the prison you want this oil we the chrism uh you want this oil you a pilgrim you did this to our ancestors not our children the urgency is beyond this urgency. who you call with 919
11: the enemy emergency north dakota lawmakers are proposing new legislation that could make life tough for any future protesters there that legislation includes an exemption if motorists accidentally injure or kill a protester by running over them on the road it comes after months of rallies against the dakota access pipeline and confrontations with police
5: as far as any protest bills that have been introduced in North Dakota I mean they're not they're not just there here um, in Minnesota the state that I'm currently in they're introducing um, anti-protest bills as well because people here are gearing up to fight line three um, we have anti-protest bills in Virginia because they're fighting I think the transatlantic pipeline out there We have anti-protest bills going up in Canada because they're fighting kinder Morgan.
10: You should leave, because those seats you sit sitting in will be replaced by somebody who wants down! The
13: angry crowd erupted after the House Civil Law Committee approved a bill which would allow protesters to be
11: sued to recover costs for what the bill calls illegal demonstrations. Most of what we've seen has been state legislation, and that is actually where most of this change can happen. So that's really the level to watch because most laws that have to do with protest, they come in the form of criminalizing or adding penalties to things like trespass and obstruction of traffic. And those are things that are criminalized generally at the state level. We see that even in the specific terms of the legislation where they really try to mischaracterize this peaceful protest as economic sabotage or economic terrorism completely misconstruing what these folks are doing and using language, which is obviously incredibly powerful, to change the way that protesters are seen in people's minds and how protesters may even be willing to perceive themselves in terms of, you know, worry about associate themselves with something that they don't believe themselves to be associated with. So North Dakota was the state that saw by far the most of these bills actually pass into law. Other bills that were proposed included these quote-unquote hit-and-kill bills that basically said that a driver who was exercising his quote-unquote right to drive would not be held liable if he accidentally hit a protester who, you know, happened to be pushed off of the sidewalk into the street at a mass protest. Other versions did focus on what legislators deem, quote-unquote, critical infrastructure. Sabotage or their attempt to protect critical infrastructure that really, in other words, is targeting anti-pipeline protests that focus on trespass specifically of, quote-unquote, critical infrastructure, which isn't necessarily even a term that's been defined before in some places or where it has been. There's already a law prohibiting this.
1: Today's episode is sponsored by Bolt, the security as a service company that is your one stop shop for online security. Now, to be secure with your data, you need a few things. So, here's a quick overview you need a secure, encrypted connection between your devices and the rest of the internet, you need a secure and encrypted place to store files and back up your full hard drive online and you need a way to create and store long, complicated, and unique passwords for every online account you own. With Bolt, they provide all of these services as a package deal, which allows them to offer it to their customers for 75% off. And as a special offer to my listeners, you can get an additional 10% off when you use the coupon code BEST at checkout. So with Bolt, you get their fully encrypted virtual private network, or VPN, which acts as a middleman between you and the rest of the net, keeping your data private. Add to that their unlimited online storage and backup solutions and their password manager. And in one fell swoop, you'll have all of the tools you need to keep yourself as secure as possible online. I've made it easy for you to find this deal. Just go to bestoftheleft.com bolt. That's bolt like deadbolt. And don't forget to enter the coupon code best for an additional 10% off your bill. Not just for the first month, but for forever. Again, that's bestoftheleft.com .com/bolt and use the coupon code best at checkout.
14: There's a general editorial instinct to want to downplay calling things bad things. So we saw this with NPR, um, who is the worst at this because they're so obsessed with not looking like they're the liberal media. They had on their spokesperson to explain why on Morning Edition to explain why they never call Trump's lies lies or refer to Trump as a liar. Uh, she said that she went to go look at the definition of Oxford English dictionary to seek the definition of lie, which she said was quote, <laughs> a false statement made with intent to deceive. And then she went on to say, quote, intent being the key word there without the ability to appear <laughs> into Donald Trump's head. I can't tell you what his intent was, right? I can tell you what he said and how that it squares or doesn't square with facts. Now by this standard, of course, you could never call anyone right, a liar, right? Without knowing what their intention
13: is, which means that actually actually the only way you could like be a liar is if you call yourself a liar because you
14: knowingly lied right lots of terms in the English language involve theory of mind, they involve men's ray of some kind right you're you're assuming a degree of ill intent by using what you know normal human beings do, which is pattern recognition, which is after the hundredth time Trump has been corrected on something or the thousandth time he's lied and he kind of winks and nods at the camera that knowing he's lying. And sort of even will tell you he's lying that like, I think we're in this safe spot now where we can call it a lie. But because of this civility fetish, because there are people in the media who can't look like they're partisan or they're overreaching or too, God forbid, the I word ideological. We routinely come to these terms and these labels that are on their face, deeply inadequate to describe the forces that are that have emerged on the right, which is an ideology manifested by Trump, but not limited to him that is increasingly able to take this fetish, to take this fear, and to use it to their advantage. Um, just as they have with, you know, free speech absolutism, which, you know, obviously Richard Spencer just admitted was a wedge to create space for Nazi ideology. They've taken the civility fetish and completely dunked on liberals and Democrats, whose only recourse is more fact-checking and more sur 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 Yeah, the, it seems like the idea that agreeing to disagree –
13: is basically the the highest order of partisan politics for the media and also for a lot of politicians. As if basically all of this is just like a matter of of rhetorical flourish or like witty repartee instead of politics having like actually very real implications for the people who live and die under the rather uncivil bombs – That are dropped on them and the very uncivil threats that are made about overthrowing countries and and uncivil policies that encourage families to be like torn apart from each other or land to be destroyed by extractive policies. These are real things that are not civil, but as long as you kind of don't use bad words and don't call names, then basically it's deemed to be totally reasonable,
14: regardless of the actual implications of this stuff. We saw this most I, – I think the Twitter terms of service is a really great distillation of this concept, yeah. which is to say decency and civility appeals are almost always about protecting people in power. Because the oppression, subjugation, and condescension of and abuse of those out of power is simply factored into the equation. And I thought a really uh, fascinating example of this was – so Twitter updated their terms of service last year, and this is their terms of service for for violence. Calls for violence, right? Yeah, this is calls for violence, which are a violation of the terms of service for Twitter. But they said, quote – Groups included in this policy will be those that identify as such or engage in activity both on and off the platform that promotes violence. This policy does not apply to military or government entities. So Twitter's terms of service specifically has a carve out for people in power. So you can post something saying – and this has obviously happened several times – we need to bomb Iran, or we need to uh, shoot protesters in Palestine, or we need to uh, have regime change in North Korea, or we need to have a coup in Venezuela, that that is acceptable forms of provocation.
13: Those are all completely civil discourse.
14: Right. But telling, you know, Jeff Bezos or Donald Trump to go, you know, sit on a on a bicycle without a seat, that that's promotion of violence. Now, of course, in the former uh, example, my words are far more likely to actually affect violence, which is to say a high status person advocating op-ed in the Washington Post, coup regime change that in the aggregate, that is far more actual material effect yeah. than you know, someone telling the president to go fuck himself or someone telling a high status journalist that that they should be removed from society or some sort, or delete your existence or some sort of right. thing that's gotten people suspended. Now without focusing too much on Twitter, I do I do think that that, that asymmetry and the sort of complete formal codification of the protection of power as a way of policing, you know, civility or, or norms is a really finite and sort of, I think, unequivocal example of how these concepts are meant to indemnify power. They're meant to protect power. right? Um, and another example of this was, was a piece written in The Atlantic in uh, August of last year. It was a 12,000 word sort of magnum opus by a writer named Kurt Anderson about the the descent of America into conspiracy theory. That there was this radical fringe of both the right and the left that had ruined the country. Now, it's worth noting that the biggest conspiracy theory of our generation, you're, you and my generation, is the idea that Iraq helped do 9-11. Right. Which, of course, fits the, which, which fits the textbook definition of conspiracy, cherry-picked evidence- Paranoia, right, right. Literal collusion
13: between, yeah. these like evil entities conspiring together Without against evidence the, against um, the, the noble United States and its people. Right. So
14: this is a textbook definition of a conspiracy theory. Turns out not to be true, as as most conspiracy theories definitionally don't. This was omitted from his twelve thousand word official history, and of course the reason why it was is the person who edits him, the managing editor. The head of The Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg, was the number one promoter of this conspiracy theory. <laughs> right. Whoops. Uh, now – and then he says over and over again in the in the piece that he uses these ableist and kind of tautological labels, crazy, insane, delusional, to speak about what he calls postmodern leftists, the anti-war left. He, he claims falsely that the uh, Weather Underground – set off, quote, thousands of bombs in the early 70s. The total number of bombs that were set up by all terrorist groups in the United States was 400, right, uh, 540. Right. But the point is to sort of say, oh, there's these loony crazies who sort of gone too far. Yeah, and what what's never really reconciled is that through this time period, one is, this raises the question of: was it considered crazy or insane or delusional to kill three million Indo Chinese in Vietnam? Was the CIA's use of you know torture and and coups and dirty wars and executions are these things considered crazy? And of course, the answer is no, because they're sort of factored in that violence is factored into the system, and that the only people who can be Uncivil or be conspiracy theorists are, by definition, people who are not factored in. Right. And those who
13: are then challenging that, which is why certainly from the 60s and beyond, and I'm sure before that as well, protesters, and definitely when it came to civil disobedience, that people that challenged power – that took to the streets that actually challenged and fought against these policies, whether it was for civil rights, whether it was against Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera, and you can take that all the way up the decades you know since those are often deemed to be kind of too loud, too radical, they're not inclusive enough, even though they're pretty much the most inclusive of, you know, marginalized and vulnerable communities. Um, And yet, protests are seen like, oh, well, you know, are they going to shut down traffic? Like, is my commute going to be fucked up? Because, like, I think there are better ways to do that. And so what you see is the policies that are being challenged, right? The wars, the invasions, the deportations, etc., whatever it may be, those are never uncivil. Those are never uncouth. But challenging them in certain ways is insufficiently respectful.
1: In these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly Indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, DC, Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestforlife.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best to get started. When it comes to energy, Energy, now you have a choice.
4: The National Football League has announced it will fine teams if players refuse to stand for the national anthem before games. But under the new rules adopted by the league's 32 owners, players will be allowed to stay in the locker room during the anthem. Over the past two seasons, dozens of players have knelt during the anthem to protest police shootings of unarmed black men. The on-field protests began in August 2016, when quarterback Colin Kaepernick refused to stand for the anthem to protest racism and police brutality. At the time, Kaepernick said, quote, "'I am not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color.'" The protest would eventually cost Kaepernick his job. He has essentially been blacklisted from the league, but the protest spread throughout the NFL. The protest also attracted the attention of President Trump, who repeatedly attacked the protesting players.
3: Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners, when somebody disrespects our flag, to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired, he's fired.
6: President Trump has praised the NFL's new rules, saying the league is, quote, doing the right thing. Meanwhile, filmmaker Michael Moore tweeted, ''Oh, NFL, I love you. What better time to curtail free speech than during the national anthem, USA, 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 back in the USA?'' To talk more about these stories, we're joined in Washington, D.C. by Dave Zirin, sports editor for The Nation magazine, also host of Edge of Sports. His new piece is titled ''The Real Reason NFL Owners Want to Punish Players for Protesting During the National Anthem''. Um, Okay, What's that? that real reason dave
8: Uh, The real reason, Amy, is about controlling labor and controlling the NFL workforce. I think that what Colin Kaepernick started in the NFL represented the greatest threat to institutional power in the National Football League, and that institutional power is ownership power that we've seen since the dawn of free agency 25 years ago. They were saying to NFL owners that we will not behave the way you want us to behave. We are going to show fans what we have going on between our ears, not just between our pads, and we are going to stand up for what we believe is right, namely a movement against police violence and a movement against racial inequity. And that's something that I think scared the pants off NFL owners. Who There are no black NFL owners, and all except one are white billionaires. And this was a moment where NFL players were saying, wait a minute, you can't just treat us like pieces of equipment. You can't just treat us as future concussion victims. We're going to stand up and say what we believe, and we are going to use our platform to do so. And this is the reaction. This is the backlash. These are the conservative NFL owners saying, we are going to quash your free speech, your constitutional rights, your voice, in the name of quelling a labor upsurge in the National Football League.
4: Well, I want to ask about President Trump's uh, uh, role in this controversy. This is President Trump speaking to Fox and Friends this morning.
3: Well, I think that's good. I don't think people should be staying in locker rooms, but still, I think it's good. You have to stand proudly for the national anthem. Well, you shouldn't be playing. You shouldn't be there. Maybe you shouldn't be in the country. You have to stand proudly for the national anthem. And
14: the NFL owners did the right thing if that's what they've done.
4: So that's President Trump speaking this morning, saying that if you don't stand for the national anthem, you shouldn't be in the country. Dave iron, yeah. your response. Love it
8: or leave it, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Love it or leave it. My response is that compulsory patriotism isn't patriotism at all. It's dictatorship. And this is what Donald Trump is standing for. It's absolutely disgusting. And it speaks far more to his character than the character of people in the National Football League who are using that space in the anthem to speak about the gap between the promises of the national anthem, the promises of this country, and the lived experiences of black Americans in this country. That's a discussion Donald Trump does not want to have. And that's what this is really all about. When has this president said one word about police brutality or about racism? If anything, he fans the flames of that kind of oppression. He does not stand against them or even want to have a dialogue about them. And that's exactly what he's trying to quelch. This has nothing to do with patriotism and has everything to do with the brutish racism that we've seen from Donald Trump going back 30, 40 years in his personal life and his professional life.
6: Well, let's go to an article published Monday by Bleacher Report on details revealed as part of the grievance Colin Kaepernick's filed against the NFL, claiming owners colluded with each other to keep him out of the league for good. Quote, according to Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk, internal team documents show teams viewed Kaepernick as being good enough not simply to be employed by an NFL team, but to be a starting quarterback for an NFL team. Dave.
8: Yeah, absolutely. The collusion case that Colin Kaepernick is building, I think, continues to gain strength. And this is one of the things that just absolutely punctures a hole in the other half of what the NFL owners are trying to do, because with this anthem issue, they are trying to operate with a, a, a very big stick, but also a little bit of sugar at the same time, the tiniest possible carrot and a huge stick. And the tiniest possible carrot is them giving $89 million, basically the cost of one field goal kicker per team to say that they are supporting social justice causes among a group of NFL players and but these but there are other NFL players who are saying wait a minute this has no validity whatsoever that you support us as long as P- Colin Kaepernick and as long as his former teammate Eric Reid are colluded against and kept out of the league precisely because they protested during the anthem and helped lead this movement Colin Kaepernick has been very strong from day 1 saying that he's not going to stand up for a flag that oppressed black people in this country. He has every right to do that. And yet, Donald Trump doesn't think so, and the NFL doesn't think so. And this only proves, yet again, that the NFL—I mean, it doesn't just stand for not for long—that's the old joke—because of the injury rate in the league, but it also stands for the no-freedom league.
4: And, Dave Zyron, what about the the Players Union, the NFL uh, 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 Players Association? How have they responded to this? Well, this is why I think what
8: the NFL did yesterday was basically put out a fire with kerosene. Uh, because the NFL Players Association is absolutely incensed uh, because they were not brought to the negotiating table to speak about this issue. So they put out a blistering statement about what the NFL and the owners are trying to do with this issue. And it's really rare you get something that incendiary from the NFL Players Association. They are absolutely furious. Now, NFL owners will say that they have the right to change the anthem policy unilaterally, but that doesn't change the fact that it's also written into the collective bargaining agreement that players have the right to use that space as they would like. Uh, in addition to the NFL Players Association, several journalists, myself included, uh, have heard from players who have said that they did not think of protesting during the anthem or they were largely done with doing that until. The NFL came out with what they said. And now uh, there's talk about about huge groups of players staying in the locker room during the anthem as a form of protest. And this would not be a form of protest that would be against police brutality or racial inequity per se. This would be a form of protest that would be a labor protest to tell NFL owners you cannot control us unilaterally without having us at the bargaining table.
10: talk this question of civility and its presence in American history, we're going to speak with Nicole Hemmer, author of Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media and the Transformation of American Politics, an assistant professor at the University of Virginia's Miller Center of Public Affairs, and co-host of the Past Present Podcast. Hi, Nicole. Welcome to Trumpcast. Hey, Jamel. So this week... Listeners already know that we've had this conversation over the last week about civility in politics and where it's gone and where it's going um, and so forth. And you wrote a really interesting piece for Vox this week where you're a columnist pushing back against historical comparisons or at least ones that sort of argue that we were more civil in the past. So could you could you speak a, a little bit about those comparisons and what you find wrong about them?
0: Right. So one of the big comparisons that was being made was about Martin Luther King, that King would have embraced civility over disorder, incivility, or being mean to people. And in many ways, I saw kind of the recreation of the same arguments that were being used against King back in the 1950s and 1960s, that civility was being used as kind of a cudgel to shut people up and to stop the argument, rather than to kind of further it. And what I mean by that is that back when King was pioneering his methods of direct action, when he was engaging in civil disobedience, he wasn't considered civil at all in that time. In fact, he was constantly being called upon to be more civil, to stop disrupting things, to just wait for, um, for the law to work or for arguments to work and not to keep um, instigating these moments of, of riots or violence or mayhem, to stop being an agitator. King himself, even though he, he did believe very strongly in nonviolence, not just as a tactic, but as a way of life, he believed you should be civil, not only he, that you should be nonviolent, not only in your actions, but in your words, um, was in many ways aware of the ways that civility was used to shut protests down and to prevent justice rather than to further it. So I think it might
10: be worth stepping back from here a little bit and trying to parse what exactly we mean these days when we talk about civility because the, precip- the precipitating incidents for this conversation were the sort of public shaming of several Trump administration officials and then at the, uh, the restaurant tour in Lexington, Virginia, who asked uh, press secretary Sarah Hugby Sanders to leave a restaurant. Um, and that, that then prompted a whole conversation about whether that's appropriate, whether it's, it's uncivil to, Um, use those actions, but it's unclear to me what, what people mean by civil, right? Like, is it simply being calm? Is it simply being sort of polite or is there? Is there some other argument about sort of the role of politics and civil society that's going on?
0: So I think that this is actually a big part of the problem. And this is why the Red Hen case being the center of this conversation is so confusing, because if you look at the actions of the owner and the people at the Red Hen, they were incredibly civil in just about any way you could define the word, right? They very calmly call Sarah Sanders aside. They explain to her very calmly what what their reasoning is for not being able to serve her. They comp her her meal, and then they don't say anything about it, right? They don't run to the press and say, you know, look at what we did to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Um, And so that makes this a particularly odd case for it. But at the same time, I think it helps us understand the way that civility can be used as kind of a wily weapon against any sort of activism or speaking out, right? I mean, what happened here? You had people talking to a public official and expressing their discontent in probably the most civil way possible and yet still being beaten back by this idea that they're not being civil enough and being beaten back across the political spectrum, right? It's right. not just conservatives who are coming out against the red hen. It's Bernie Sanders, it's Nancy Pelosi. So it's really happening across the board.
10: I guess the thing that I find baffling about all of this is that, um, in addition, in addition to sort of the the paradigmatic examples of protests in the sixties and seventies being decidedly uncivil by the, I guess, this common meaning, um, what it seems like is happening is essentially an argument that. There is no place in politics in um, public discussion for uh, what I guess we call public shaming or like moral opprobrium or casting some political actions as beyond, you know, ordinary politics in the in the sense that we can all disagree or agree about tax policy and towards something more um, akin to an ethical problem that must be confronted that like the argument the implicit argument, at least, from the critics of The Red Hen and, and others is that uh, that has no place in in politics as we understand it. And that just seems really, like, ahistorical to me. It seems it seems not of a piece with how Americans have done politics um, since the country's inception.
0: Right. There's no place, really, for righteous anger. And I think you make a good point about bringing this to kind of a, a moral discussion and the, the lines that are being drawn here. I mean... We've seen throughout American history people using different types of violent, nonviolent, civil, uncivil actions, especially when the political system fails them, right? Um, so if we think about anything from John Brown and abolitionists who are fighting back against a system in which there is no room within the political realm to really debate, um, or to have a discussion <laughs> or to end something as uh, immoral as enslavement. If we look at um, women fighting for suffrage and having to use all kinds of tactics in order to disrupt the normal politics in order to get their agenda on the table. Or as you rightly point out, in the 1960s and 1970s, the work of activists to, again, break through this kind of consensus that civility was protecting. And I think that's what's so important about understanding this nostalgia about civility is that Yes, I think, you know, mainstream politics in the 1950s and early 1960s looked incredibly civil. And in fact, if you look back at the newspaper records of the time, there's this real lacuna, this real dip in the any discussion about civility in the 1950s and early 60s. Um, but part of that was that so much of politics was taken off the table and this sort of general white middle-class consensus was being held up by both parties, by the journalists of the day, um, and anything outside of that consensus was deemed both illegitimate but also uncivil. And there wasn't really a space in mainstream politics to make your case. So something like a lunch counter sit-in, something like a March on Washington in 1963 is seen as rabble-rousing and uncivil and outside of the bounds of normal politics. And I think that's what we're kind of seeing today. As the politics of the day get more and more out of bounds, and as there's fewer and fewer options for people to protest within the the mainstream political system, you're going to get these confrontations, in part because the acts of officials are so immoral and so beyond the pale, but also because people feel like there's not really a voice for them within a system that's, you know, largely controlled by Republicans.
12: A Washington Post poll from July 2017 found that one out of every three Washington, D.C., residents said they'd taken part in a protest against Donald Trump since his inauguration. That number included half of the district's white residents, half of people making more than $100,000 a year, and a fifth of respondents over the age of 65. As more and more people go out in the street, states are rushing to criminalize that resistance. This time last year, we talked about the right to protest and the role of law in a time of widespread dissent with activist attorney Mara verhaden Hilliard, executive director of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. I started by asking about the J-20, the group of people, including journalists, arrested for protesting at Trump's January twenty. 20th inauguration. Counterspin listeners got an update on the state of that case just a few weeks back on the show. Mara Verhayden Hilliard explained the nature of the J20 case.
9: This case is really of extraordinary proportions when you look at what the government is doing to people who are engaged in protest on the first day that Trump took office. And it's really, in its own context, significant, too, because of the major shift in policing in Washington, D.C., which we believe is intended to send a signal. What's happened now is more than 200 people were swept up in a dragnet arrest by the police. And this occurred after the police had uh, followed the demonstration for, by their own account, approximately half an hour while. There were some people who broke windows, only a handful of people. And rather than going in and arresting the people for whom they had probable cause to arrest, the police waited at an arbitrary time trapped and detained 200 people. And so they swept up demonstrators, passersby, journalists, anyone who's in proximity, anyone who was chanting and protesting. And then they undertook this mass prosecution with the United States Attorney's Office here in the District of Columbia, in which people are being threatened with, as you've mentioned, jail time, that is decades and decades long, really a lifetime of jail time with these felony charges. They are charging people en masse with crimes that may have happened in terms of property damage, but charging everyone with crimes without particularized probable cause, without being able to point to a person and say, you committed this act and so we're charging you for this act. They're charging everyone in the vicinity for being in proximity. This is extremely dangerous. It sets the stage that for any demonstration, if anyone commits a criminal act, an act of property damage, whether that be a protester or, frankly, a police agent provocateur, the police can now use this as license, or they wish to, to sweep up everyone else around them.
15: Well, this is what we talked about before. It's not a crime now, is it, to be in proximity to other people who break the law in conjunction with First Amendment activities?
9: Of course it's not, and it cannot be. And the First Amendment uh, has always stood for that, in fact, you cannot criminalize a person for the acts of another, and particularly in the context of the First Amendment when it's an issue where the connection is that there may be a sympathy of political views. One cannot do that. There are cases dating back NAACP v. Claiborne Hardware and others, the court said, you have to act with precision. You cannot say that just because people have a similar point of view or may have similar political goals, that those who carry out illegal acts or acts of violence in pursuit of those goals, that those acts can be attributed to the others who do not.
15: Right. These charges at the, the level they're at, It feels new, but we know that the effort to repress First Amendment expression is not new. The Supreme Court last month rejected a First Amendment case that dates from years back, Garcia v. Bloomberg. Can you tell us about that and how it relates?
9: The Garcia v. Bloomberg case comes from the Occupy demonstration of 2011 when 700 people were peacefully marching, compliant with police orders, uh, there was no violence, and as people marched, the police escorted the march. The police themselves closed the Brooklyn Bridge roadway to vehicular traffic. The police and com- police commanders themselves opened up the roadway to pedestrian traffic. It is the police and police commanders who led the demonstrators onto the roadway of the Brooklyn Bridge. And once those demonstrators had flowed and followed behind the lead of the police, the police stopped the march, Trapped them from behind, mass arrested seven hundred people when we litigated this case, we won at the district court level, we won at the second circuit, in fact, and then Mayor de Blasio, who had taken office, frankly, running on an occupy ticket,
14: mm-hmm.
9: had the court reevaluate the ruling, and the court, in an extraordinary measure reversed itself and We took this case up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court just last month determined that they would not hear it.
15: Obviously, lots of folks are taking their lead from this and kind of joining on this bandwagon. We have a spate of anti-protest legislation around the country. Even U.N. experts are issuing alarmed statements now. Some 20 states have passed or tried to pass laws allowing protesters to be charged with conspiracy, increasing penalties for blocking streets, even protecting drivers who run protesters over, banning masks and hoodies. I mean, is anyone really confused that the intent of these rules is to quash dissent? And doesn't that thinly veiled intent matter?
9: It's clear that there is an effort around the country to try and through Legal means, although we would consider them illegal means, right. curtail people's fundamental First Amendment rights to gather together in the streets uh, to be able to speak out in unified action. I do think as much as we're seeing these kinds of restrictions imposed and these rulings that at the same time it can obviously have a chilling effect on people, the reality is that people do always come out, and mm-hmm. people will continue to come out. And, the, and while this may be intended to have a chilling effect, it is really crucial that people stand up and speak out for what they believe in. And I do think the reason that we're seeing these is because there is a growing recognition that there really is this, this fire of people, these embers burning where we keep seeing people come up and demonstrating for what they believe in. We're seeing so many more people entering political life, even since the election of Donald Trump. People are taking the streets and protesting who never protested before. So while we're faced with what is, I think, overt repression, both in terms of these felony prosecutions, these state laws, these court rulings, we also are faced with the fact that there are millions of people who are engaging in political protest and political organizing, who have never done so before, and that's a force that really can't be stopped.
1: We've just heard clips today starting with On the Media discussing the problem with civility. Then we heard part of the Criminalizing Protest musical montage put together by the Newsbeat podcast. Citations Needed then discussed what they termed the civility fetish. Democracy Now! spoke with Dave Zirin about the NFL's new policy banning on-field protests during the National Anthem. The Trump cast explored the historical context of civility being used as a cudgel. And finally, we just heard Counterspin discussing the new swath of efforts to criminalize protest. For further exploration on this subject, I recommend listening to the full episode on criminalizing protest from our friends over at Newsbeat. We only heard a portion of it here today, but the whole thing is worth your time, so check that out. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
16: Hey, Jay. This is David in Houston. Uh, love the show. I have a quick question, I guess. I've been hearing a lot about universal basic income, and I think it's an awesome idea except for one thing, uh, and I'm hoping you can you can help me figure this part out or at least get past it. So if everyone gets paid a basic income, let's say, for example, $5, just as a number, just to throw a number out there. If everyone's income goes up by $5, wouldn't every retailer just raise the price of everything by five dollars or ever or whatever amount just because they know everyone has this extra money to spend. So let's say it's two hundred dollars. Wouldn't apartment buildings just raise the rent two hundred dollars or however much just because they know everybody else has this extra income as well? Isn't that kind of the basic definition of inflation? I'm trying to trying to get past that and trying to work that out in my head and trying to see how that will work out in real life. Hope you can answer that for me. Thanks, Jay. Love the show. And keep up the good work.
1: Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So a quick answer to the voicemail about whether or not a universal basic income would create massive inflation. This is not a stupid question by by any stretch, but it is a frequently asked question. So you could easily dive into a million different articles or watch a bunch of videos on YouTube. Uh, the, the, the question has been answered. So I'm just going to give a super quick overview and then direct you to uh, an article where you can get way deep into the weeds. So first of all, the macroeconomic perspective, the answer on how... Inflation happens is like if you create money out of nothing as the Fed does, but if you create a whole bunch of money out of nothing, then there's more money, but the same amount of stuff, the same amount of demand, all of that, then each dollar is worth less because there are more of them, right? And so basically in a universal basic income concept, that's not what you're doing. You're not printing money. You aren't creating more dollars. So each dollar doesn't change its value. It just changes its location because universal basic income projects, concepts are built on taxing the rich, either directly, consistently, or taxing the rich and creating sort of a permanent wealth fund that owns, like, America, basically, that pays dividends and so you know there're lots of different ways you can do it but the idea is you redistribute wealth and that wealth pays dividends forever so in in that situation at least on a macroeconomic perspective that shouldn't cause inflation because you're not printing money you're not creating money out of nothing. And one example that this article, you know, unsurprisingly there's an article wouldn't unconditional basic income just cause massive inflation. So this article points out that when the Fed does quantitative easing, when they like create a bunch of money out of thin air and give it to the banks as they did after or you know at the very beginning of the recession to try to avert total depression, their goal was to create Inflation, because they didn't want it to convert into deflation, which is much worse. So they were trying to create inflation, and even though they created something like $700 billion out of thin air, it didn't create as much inflation as they wanted. So it takes an enormous amount, for you know, for an economy our size, it takes an enormous amount of created money to cause inflation. And with UBI, you're not even doing that. So hopefully, at least on the macro economic scale, that puts some fears to rest. On the, uh, you know, you, of course, you may never know what people are going to do on the behavioral economics side of the scale, but we do have some evidence because UBI has been tested in a few different places on a few different scales throughout history. And in those instances, either no inflation happens Or inflation gets better, like it goes down. Uh, So there have been a couple of places where inflation has been high, and they have implemented a universal basic income, which made everyone fear that the inflation would get worse, and it didn't. It did the reverse, and it actually came down. So. Really, I can't get into any more details on that. It is not my area of expertise. And from this point, you get so deep into the weeds that you really have to be interested in it to to go deeper. So as I said, the article that I found along with videos and other things. This one happens to be called wouldn't unconditional basic income just cause massive inflation. And I'll link to that in the show notes. Just look for the final comment section of the show notes and the link will be there. And then lastly today, I just wanted to recommend another episode. I heard an episode of the dig while researching today's episode. I wasn't able to include a clip from it, but I just really want you to listen to it. It's their episode from January 3rd, 2018. It's titled Troop Veneration and U.S. Empire with Catherine Lutz. And the episode touches on protest, which is why it came to my attention and I thought it may be useful for this episode. And... The whole thing, it's an hour, hour and 20 minutes, something like that. And the whole thing is just fascinating. So, you know, as you get from the title, Troop Veneration and U.S. Empire, like, okay, like, I kind of know that story, right? Like, the U.S. venerates its military. You can see it right now with the debate over the flag and the anthem and the NFL is totally in bed with the military. So that's how we think about the military these days. And that helps us perpetuate The desire to go to war or, you know, the whole support the troops thing from the Bush era. But what this conversation does is not just explain where we are. I feel like I've heard that story before. What this conversation does is explain how we got here. Because if you think far enough back in the history, like imagine a pop culture icon like Gomer Pyle. Could a character like that even be created today with our current sensibilities around the military. I I think not. And so what that tells you right there is, even if you didn't live through it yourself or if you did live through it and you forgot it, our perception of the military has shifted a lot over the last 50 or 60 years. And so to understand how and why that happened, which was absolutely intentional, and it was done at the time specifically to separate the Individual military person from the wars where they were fighting and very often doing terrible things and committing war crimes. Obviously, not all of them. The point is that the United States usually has policies of going and fighting wars that they shouldn't be fighting. So they send these people off to do that dirty work and things go terribly wrong. And so, in order to sort of deflect away from focusing on what the war is, and what we're doing, and why, the entire narrative has been shifted to focus on the individual soldier, the individual marine, and so forth. And as a society that loves to focus on individualism, that was a very compelling message. As I said, I mean, the the whole conversation is great. I can't possibly reiterate it here. I I think there is a clip or two from it I will be able to pull and and use in the future, but I can't do it justice. You should just go check out the whole thing again. uh, The show is called The Dig. The episode is from January 3rd, 2018. I wish I could just say, go pull it up in their podcast feed, but they only have 50 episodes in their feed, and that's the oldest one. So as soon as they release a new episode, which might even happen by the time you hear me saying this, it'll get pushed off the bottom. So for this also, I'm going to leave a link directly to the webpage where you can find this episode in the show notes under the final comments section. So that's going to be it for today. As always, please keep the comments coming in the number to dial 202-999-3991 thanks to everyone for listening thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. that is absolutely how the program survives of course everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show for details on the show itself including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.